This year, I've treated people with chronic intercostal pain after COVID-19 pneumonia, COVID-19-induced neuropathies, and even burning mouth syndrome following COVID-19. And that's actually a case that Mustafa and I saw together and recently submitted uh, a case report about. So let's talk a little bit more about this intersection between cocaine and COVID-19. What proportion of the long COVID patients seem to have pain complaints? You're listening to the Pain Matters Podcast, presented by the American Academy of Pain Medicine, the nation's leading podcast for healthcare providers, focused on providing the best care today, tomorrow, and beyond. Each episode, we'll share the latest innovations and practical applications that directly impact how we care for patients and measure success in multidisciplinary care. Let's get started. Hi, and welcome back to Pain Matters. I'm Dr. Shravni Dirbakula, anesthesiologist and pain physician at the Johns Hopkins Hospital, as well as the creator and host of painrounds.org. Today, I wanna introduce a guest co-host, Dr. Mustafa Brochwala. Mustafa is a third year physical medicine and rehabilitation resident at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine, and he's a rock star who will be applying for pain fellowships this year. Fun fact, he's also going to be taking over our AAPM Instagram soon and doing some really unique, creative, and exciting things with that. Mustafa, can you tell us a little more about yourself? Dr. Bakala, thank you so much for the introduction. Like you said, I'm a third year physical medicine and rehabilitation resident at Johns Hopkins. I am going to hopefully take over the Instagram page and do some unique things. So I want everyone to uh, keep an eye out for that. I myself am interested in the unique cross-section of physiatry and pain medicine, and I look forward to applying this upcoming cycle. Today, I actually have the distinct honor to introduce one of my own mentors within the field, Dr. Sue Kim, who is the Director of Pain Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York. Beyond that, she's been a pioneer in one of the country's first post-acute COVID-19 syndrome clinics, or PACS clinics. Today, we're going to be exploring the intersection of chronic pain and COVID-19. Dr. Kim, do you want to start off by telling us about the long COVID clinic and how it came to be? Before I came to Mount Sinai, I was at Hopkins, where I started the post-COVID clinic. So that was back in 2020 when we had the first surge. And we all saw that a large number of patients were hospitalized and they were, they were admitted to ICU. And we anticipated that the patients, after they discharge, they need the ambulatory care. That's when we actually started the post-acute COVID team there. And after we had the first surge and after it got into late 2020, we started getting more and more referrals from non-hospitalized patients with similar cluster of symptoms, including chronic fatigue and long, long and short-term memory loss and exercise intolerance that cannot be explained by just a respiratory illness that they had with COVID-19 infection. That's when we started recognizing a long COVID syndrome. So that's really interesting. Can you tell us a little bit more specifically, like what are the most common clinical presentations that you see? It's not just a respiratory, it's not just cardiovascular. A lot of patients are coming in with a chronic fatigue that's the most common symptom and also cognitive issues like brain fog or memory loss and some uh, exercise intolerance and, and other symptoms that goes along with it. Understood. So it seems like there's a, really a lot at play here. And, and with that said, what do you find the most challenging about managing patients with long COVID? Initially, it was more of a recognition of the long COVID because 
those symptoms really have nothing to do with their initial respiratory illness. A lot of PCPs did not recognize that this is a sequelae of a COVID infection. So patients were not referred to the right people, and they were some sometimes ignored. They all you know were referred to psychology, and that was the most challenging uh, fact dealing with the post-COVID patients. And now as they gain more uh, recognition of the long COVID syndromes. So now um, the PCPs are doing a little better job referring those patients, but still they don't know where to send them to and how to manage them. Understood. And so it seems like a disease that's very multifaceted. And with that said, uh, what kind of physicians uh, or, or non-physicians are staffing this clinic? In most cases, they are led by PMNR or pulmonary critical care with some other specialties such as psychiatry or psychology or neurology as a consultant. And, you know, we talked about some of the challenges that you thought, uh, you know, were the most challenging in, in these patients, but what do you find the most rewarding? When they get better, when they return back to their uh, pre-COVID status, unfortunately, a lot of people suffer from long-term disability because what I noticed the most was these symptoms really don't go away for months. So for the patients who I managed, a lot of patients had these kind of disabilities up to six months and up to a year. And still they were at about like 75% of their baseline. And some of them really never went back to their 100% baseline, which means they were never able to return back to their original job at their, their level of function, even after two years or three years. So that was most frustrating. So when I see them going back to their, their, their what we call as a normal life, that was the most rewarding thing for me. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure it must have been. In, in the past you know, year or so, is there any way that the clinic has evolved? So when it first started, most of the clinics were telemedicine-based for obvious reason. As we get over that acute phase, it has evolved into more of an in-person and telemedicine hybrid clinic so that they can actually do more objective testing, like dysautonomia testings and other studies that we weren't able to do when we were just running virtually. So that's probably the biggest one. And also the older physical therapies or speech language therapists were done virtually initially uh, for the same reason, but now they actually can go in and then we're seeing better outcome. So many patients have presented to our Hopkins pain clinic with complaints related to long COVID. This year, I've treated people with chronic intercostal pain after COVID-19 pneumonia, COVID-19-induced neuropathies, and even burning mouth syndrome following COVID-19. And that's actually a case that Mustafa and I saw together and recently submitted uh, a case report about. So let's talk a little bit more about this intersection between pain and COVID-19. What proportion of the long COVID patients seem to have pain complaints? Pain is one of the biggest um, complaints that we see, uh, followed by chronic fatigue. But when we say pain, I think we have to categorize a little bit more into subgroups. So this long COVID, as I said, it can be from their original illness, or sometimes it develops after they recover from original illness. So when it comes to the group that had very severe case for the respiratory um, illness, and sometimes they get hospitalized, they get um, direct injury to the nerves, like 
critical illness neuropathy, critical illness myopathy, or pulling neuropathy, or sometimes Guillain-Barre syndromes, or, you know, from prolonged uh, bedridden status, they can have a compressive neuropathy as well. For those patients, we do have pretty obvious uh, identifiable nerve injury. So those patients are, that can be grouped as one group. Other group is um, the one that complains about like vague myalgia. That goes along with more of a dysautonomia or chronic fatigue syndromes or uh, post-exertion MLAs, those type of patients. They present similarly to like fibromyalgia type of pain, like generalized body ache, um, doesn't get better or, uh, or worse with any of other like associative factors. The symptoms that you just described or cases you just described like intercostal neurology or like burning mouth syndrome, those um, are fairly rare, but they do occur. Uh, we don't know why they're happening, but a lot of time we think that um, it can be from just the, you know, the cytokine storm that we have from that immune response or you know, we all know that COVID-19 attached to, it has really, um, it, it has high affinity to ACE receptors. Um, so when, like, sometimes it's reported to have a testicular pain or other type of areas where they have high concentration of ACE receptors, they tend to have more inflammation. And that's the, one of the reasons why they have cardiomyopathies and then the myocardial inflammations. And those organs tend to get attacked more and then to create more painful conditions. And if they answered your question. Yeah, that's, that's great. Thank you so much. And I know you mentioned neuropathies, neuralgias, I'm assuming that EMG is one of the diagnostic modalities that you're using, but what other diagnostic modalities are you using to figure out what is happening in these patients who have long COVID and then are presenting with pain? So EMG or nerve conduction study, so EM, the nerve conduction study can detect any large fiber neuropathies. Um, so you can detect regular uh, plexopathies or compressing neuropathies or any other, the sensory neuropathy or motor neuropathy. EMG is detecting, uh, EMG can detect any of the muscle-related uh, issues along with the innervation. Uh, that was more technical one. Uh, the other test that we can use is small fiber skin biopsy, skin biopsy for small fiber neuropathy uh, because EMG or nerve conduction studies can only test the large fibers. Another one is um, the like autonomic nervous system testing. Those can, can detect um, any dysfunction in the autonomic nervous system that's probably more prevalent in post-COVID patients. Studies have to be done to rule out any cardiovascular um, thromboembolic event or so for, for the patient who you had um, had had a chest pain, could have had just a pleuritis related pain. It's, um, and that is not necessarily the intercostal neurology, but it's present very similarly. So what is the outlook for these patients that you're treating for COVID-related pain? So COVID-related pain, if we can identify the cause of that pain, maybe we have a better prognosis. Unfortunately, if that is related to their systemic illness, such as dysautonomia um, or any other like cardiovascular or pulmonary function, then unless that, that issue is being um, addressed properly, it will be really hard to manage. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I'm assuming that you're treating the system 
systemic illness and in treating the systemic illness, their COVID-related pain is also getting better. So you touched on treatment. uh, And of course, pain and psychology go hand in hand. Now, when it comes to long COVID, what role does the you have for psychological treatment uh, for long COVID? So for pain, yes, I think it it has its own benefit. Um, But in general, for long COVID, more than 50% of patients are suffering from mental health issue and cognitive issues. So, So they they do require some sort of psychological support and treatment. So for that reason, this, that plays the, the biggest role in managing long COVID patients. So of course, if someone comes in with pain, we all know that you know, pain and our um, the, the emotional center are just right next to each other. So um, that will help for them to cope with the pain or manage the pain. And what about non-pharmacological modalities beyond psychological treatment? What has been helpful for treating these patients? So it all depends on their symptoms. Um, the way that we approach it, this long COVID patients are um, based on their symptoms. So if they come in with more generalized issues, then we send them for the physical therapy. And also cognitive issues, we get help from speech language pathologists or cognitive behavioral therapies. And those are the non-pharmacological interventions that we always apply to our patients. We also teach them a lot of home exercise program and mind control techniques. Um, That also helps because a lot of patients actually do suffer from anxiety as well. So on that note, can you tell us a little bit more about interventional pain options for long COVID pain? Typical steroid injections for identifiable cause can work. Like um, a lot of people actually come in with a worsening of their joint pain from the synovial inflammation, uh, secondary to that cytokine storm. So those patients repeated steroid injection actually worked really well. For nerve-related pain, um, doing the nerve injections with a steroid can help. So those are the interventions that we offered and then had a good outcome. And, and, and what is the basis of a stellate ganglion block for long COVID? And is there evidence to support it? There is only one case series out there how they show the potential benefit of stellate ganglion block. And then we did the case series as well to see the efficacy um, of the stellate ganglion block on more of a dysautonomia symptoms. The stellate ganglion is a very interesting nervous system. Of course, this is one of the sympathetic ganglions innervating cervical and thoracic, right? Um, So when you block the stellate ganglion block, it can actually control anything above the cervical level. And also it controls some of the cardiac fibers because it it has a superior thoracic sympathetic chain. Because of that, um, the hypothesis behind it is to control both uh, cerebral blood flow um, by blocking the sympathetic chain that goes up to the brain, uh, also controlling some cardiofibers that goes to the, the heart. And as we know, the, it both involves, and long COVID patients both have some sort of brain-related issues as well as cardiac-related issue, i.e. dysautonomia. So those are two rationale um, of using stellate ganglion blood for long COVID patients. Awesome. And and what other interventions have you seen or heard of that seem promising for long COVID pain? In terms of procedural interventions? Yeah, procedural interventions. So things like, uh, you know, spinal cord stimulation, um, you know, transcranial uh, stimulation. 
I don't think we are we are that far advanced in terms of interventions. The spinal cord stimulation is interesting in a way that um, it does have a sympathectomy effect, as we all know. So if it's placed in the thoracic area, and we know that it does have some sort of sympathectomy effect, that's why it can be used in angina, and sometimes they have um, diarrhea after spinal cord stimulator trial or implant. So um, I think it it's a similar concept that if the stellar ganglion block can work, probably spinal cord stimulator can work as well. Um, but it's still theoretical at this point. Yeah, that's very fascinating. Um, and that's something Mustafa and I've actually talked about for some of our patients because exactly what you said, because of that sympathetic effect. So looking back at the pandemic, Sue, what impact did COVID-19 have on your pain patients? In general, um, not being able to see them in person was a huge impact. Um, as you know, it's really hard to evaluate patients just through the video or telephone. So many of my patients actually ended up getting more medications because of that reason. And they were all um, kind of stuck at home. They weren't able to go out and do some exercises. So after a few months of being at home, and then when I saw them back, um, a lot of them had generalized weakness or deconditioning. And as you know, for patients with a degenerated spine or degenerated joint, if once they start losing their muscles and once they start getting weaker, everything gets worse. So and then especially when they could not get the right treatment for, for that long. So that was the biggest impact that I had for my patients. Yeah, I mean, that's a, yeah. that's a great point. I mean, and I think we all can understand that there have been issues with isolation, fear, grief. We saw an increase in opioid overdose deaths, um, which is also difficult to treat, right? So if you have addiction, um, and then you have COVID-19 restrictions on space and social distancing and all that, that ends up leading to decreased access to multidisciplinary or addiction treatment. So there's all of that as well. Um, we can definitely point to steroid use issues with immunocompromised patients, at least concerns over that, um, telemedicine. Is there anything else that you can think of? Um, I think that was the main thing. It's not just about uh, isolation or um opioid overdoses, more so for physicians prescribing more medication because that was the only intervention that we could offer. So we prescribed way more medications for the pain patients because they weren't able to do any physical therapy. They weren't able to go for any injection. There was no other options that we could offer during that time. Right. Yeah. With the lack of elective procedures and missed procedures. Mm -hmm. And not just procedures, like you said, physical therapy, behavioral uh, appointments, all of the various elements that we use to treat pain were significantly hampered um, and physicians had less options. So yes, absolutely. All of that, I would say is, is true. You know, this has been extremely insightful so far, Dr. Kim. Is there anything else uh, that you think would be valuable or you'd like to add? About 20% of patients who had a COVID are suffering long COVID symptoms one way or the other. So when we see those patients, just because they are having a lot of like cognitive issues and, and other psychological issues, a lot of those complaints are kind of disregarded or ignored. Um, but we, I think the physicians, as 
as a whole, not just the pain physicians, need to focus a little more about what the long COVID symptoms are, if there's anything that we can help them with, and make sure refer them to the right providers so that they can get the, um, the appropriate management. I wouldn't say treatment because we don't know the treatment yet. And also, we also have to, you know, focus more on doing a little more research on long COVID symptoms because as of now, there are a lot of studies are coming up or manuscripts are coming up, but there are more of like instant manuscripts uh, without having much of strong powered or good level of evidence. So that is something that we probably have to consider more as we go forward. I think that's absolutely true. It's important to look critically at all the liter literature that is coming out and also look out for new literature. And I think, you know, I know there are studies going on right now for things like stellate ganglion block and long COVID and, and many other studies that are within the pain space, outside of the pain space. We might see things about spinal cord stimulation, like you mentioned for autonomic dysfunction. We may see all kinds of new literature coming out, but to obviously evaluate the quality and strength of that literature is an important part of our ability and training as scientists that we certainly need to, to implement. Um, so thank you, Dr. Kim. We really appreciate you being here today. This is an essential topic for us to talk about as we see patients, you know, as this, this continues, this the pandemic continues, we're going to see more and more patients presenting with these long COVID complaints. We know that the severity of the illness actually doesn't always correlate with the presentation of long COVID. And so even as um, we see milder cases, it doesn't mean that we're not going to see patients with long COVID or even long COVID related pain. So we'll look forward to, you know, what literature comes out to help us with these patients. Uh, thank you to the AAPM for this podcast. Thank you to Mustafa Brochwala for being here today as my co-host. And we hope to see all of you next time. Thanks for listening to the Pain Matters Podcast. If there's anything we mentioned in today's show you missed, don't worry. We take the notes for you at painmed.org slash podcast. If you're not already a subscriber, please consider pressing the subscribe button on your podcast player so you never miss a future episode. And don't forget to leave us a rating and review to help us reach and educate even more of our peers in pain medicine.